it is the brain, but it's not my part of the brain is kind of, you know, um, uh, not, it's not good enough. So, um, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to polish my halo on this because, um, we really recognize what, what is it? Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, I was worried that we had a dead guinea pig, but in fact, it's just a minor injury. Um, it's, it's just uh, sleeping. <laughs> yes, beautiful plumage. That's Richard Brown, consultant paediatric neurologist at Addenbrooke's Cambridge and good friend for the last 25 years, telling it like it is, as per usual. I'm Neil Archibald, consultant neurologist in Teesside. During this Tease Neuro podcast, we're talking paediatric neurology and finding out about the case mix Rich sees in his clinic and on the acute take, as I come to the realisation that paediatric neurologists aren't so very different from adult neurologists after all. Later in the podcast, I get a good telling off for being a bit crap at transitional neurology. I start out by asking Rich to tell us a bit about his career so far. So I thought what, uh, I mean, just while people are dialing in, maybe a good starting point for this would be be a a little self-styled CV or bio, uh, if you would, of, of, you know, because... As as those of us listening to this will will not be aware, but you and I spent um, six, well, three years actually uh, undergrad uh, medicine at Oxford between ninety three and ninety six, and then uh, you decamped to the big smoke, otherwise known as London, and our paths diverged a little bit, although we've stayed in touch. Um, so yeah, so t- talk us through where w- how your career kind of snaked its way into pediatric neurology then. Okay, uh, so um, qualified in '99 um, and went straight into um, one of those pediatric, one of those house jobs at the time that was four months, four months, four months. So one of the first actually that was a kind of rotation of um, three lots of different jobs. And my first job out of medical school was in pediatrics, um, which was uh, demanding but fascinating. And uh, all of the decisions that I made as a doctor were enacted by the um, nursing staff who were fierce advocates for their patients, and it was all very dynamic and very, you know, kind of uh, on the button. And then I went into geriatrics and then into vascular surgery, which was a completely different story. So um, I emerged from house jobs um, uh, scarred by everything apart from pediatrics and uh, determined to do that. <clears throat> and then um, I started uh, an FHO rotation at Guys and Tommies. Um, and um, which was fantastic training, but I, I, I was a little bit nervous about pediatric neurology because it, it seemed to be sort of full of very rare diagnoses and children with sort of terrible seizure disorders who used to fit and fit and fit. Um, and uh, feeling a bit uncomfortable about it, I went to uh, Australia um, in, in honesty um, uh, in, in, in pursuit of a girl who is now my wife. Um, uh, but uh, whilst there... Uh, um, uh, I uh, chose to do pediatric neurology at Sydney Children's Hospital. Uh, so that was a rather formative experience that came back as my comfort zone. Um, and then uh, returned home, um, started having a billion babies, and um, <laughs> uh, moved moved back to Cambridge, which is where my other half is from, uh, to be closer to the uh, babysitting support. And um, and basically did three years of paediatric neurology and neurodisability uh, in Cambridge before um, getting CCT. And then I worked um, 
in uh, Peterborough for eight years, doing uh, predominantly um, pediatric neurology and epilepsy, also acute pediatrics there, uh, before moving back to Cambridge in um, 2017. Uh, so um, as a consultant, I've kind of um, uh, developed um, a, a kind of an interest in um, epilepsy networks, uh, so kind of supportive clinical groups um, uh, kind of working together with kind of peer review and education and quality improvement. Um, so initially within our region and now I chair a national epilepsy network, which is a sort of confederation of all of the regional ones. Okay. Uh, and uh, so that's my bag. And I suppose, you know, like um, I, was I was just thinking about this today because I, I have this clear idea, obviously, of what my day looks like as an adult neurologist mm. uh, in terms of like, you know, uh, so mostly an outpatient specialty, 80% or so. We've got some inpatient stuff. We've got a ward shared between 12 adult neurologists in, in Teesside, and we kind of cover a big patch. And, and I, I, I'm comfortable with the case mix that I have as, a, as an adult neurologist, but I, I have very little idea what you do. Like, <laughs> no offense, but you know, what, so what, like, what does a typical day look like for a pediatric neurologist? Uh, so, um, well, so I do a bit of acute pediatrics as well. So I do some ward based acute pediatrics. I do some, some acute pediatrics in the emergency department and I do, um, uh, outpatient, um, pediatric neurology and epilepsy, um, uh, with sort of several clinics a week of, of, of that. I'm, I'm also the metabolic service lead, um, for um, Addenbrooke's for, for paediatrics, which means I do sort of metabolic clinics as well, which was as, as much a shock to me as it is to you. Um, <laughs> and um, and I, I've worn a couple of safeguarding hats over the uh, um, o over the past few years as well. So, so we're, um, I was going to say, like we're we're often sort of told, like, okay, so you know, about ten percent of the unselected acute medical take you could reliably call neurological like acute headache, uh, kind of neurological infections, like uh, if you count those, uh, they often go elsewhere, uh, you know, sort of GBS, myasthenia, the other bits and bobs, encephalitis, because it's a broad, a broad spectrum. Um, is, is that the same for pediatric neurology? Does it, how much of a, a pediatric take is, is neurological? Well, we have shitters, bitters and wheezers. Um, and um, so, so exactly a third, I think, is the answer. Um, uh, but um, I, I guess in summertime, then um, then it would be genuinely a third, I think. Um, right. uh, in in wintertime, when we have bronchiolitis, um, which is an illness that you may never have seen, um, uh, but but affects you know half of the humans on this planet, but only in their first year of life. Um, keeps us really busy. Hmm. Um, so basically, when the viruses are live, then um, then the ratio of neurology diminishes. Okay, and you see that sounds like quite a lot of your acute pediatric take is epilepsy, basically, or yeah, seizures. Um, epilepsy, febrile convulsions, um, as you say, um, headaches, and of course, an enormous amount of psychogenic pathology. No, really. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. I think that surprises me slightly. We may have to come on to that because I think there's a lot of our, a lot of our take and a lot of our outpatient work is that, of course. But um, I, think, uh, what, I think your average adult neurologist might be a bit surprised to hear that. 
Okay. You know, well, we, we, we cover the age group 13 to 16. So, um, okay. Yeah. Good point. In fact, yeah, because I've been making, making little notes of things to ask you. So I was, I was, I was thinking about my case mix, which is a lot of neurodegenerative disease, obviously, as a, as a movement disorder specialist with like Parkinson's and atypical disorders, um, hyperkinetic things as well. Uh, I'm guessing there's less of that. Well, I mean, of course, all the neurodegenerative disorders that um, uh, are kind of in any way rapidly progressive um, uh, tend to present in, in sort of infancy and early childhood. Mm. So um, lots of storage disorders, lots of autos autosomal recessive disorders uh, will present in childhood um, and, and quite a few of those in the, in the first year of life. Um, we, so we, we see a lot of uh, rapidly progressive neurodegenerative disorders. I mean, I guess the archetype for that would be um, late infantile Batten's disease. Okay. Come across that one. Um, so th th that's that's one of the neuronal ceroid lipofusionoses. Um, so uh, it tends to present between the ages of two and four with um, kind of pretty devastating seizures, and and then um, kind of neurodevelopment drops off a cliff over about two years. Mm. Uh, so um, and is treatable. So um, recognizing it early and, and considering treatment is is, is super important for us. Um, those ones are quite easy to recognize because they're, they, they, they have quite an explosive onset. Um, and, you know, and all of the ones in infancy are, are quite easy to recognize. But we do see some disorders, which um, are the ones that kind of scare pediatricians a little bit. Things like um, uh, the Neiman pick type C, yeah. um, which can, can present at all sorts of ages throughout um, uh, infancy, early childhood, adolescence, and of course into adulthood. Um, uh, where, where actually having your radar on for a sort of neurodegenerative disorder is quite important mm. and being able to pick up um, uh, subtle signs of that. So I think, I think it's probably fair to say that these are fairly rare disorders, um, but um, we are quite often asked the question, you know, this child with a developmental problem, is it a neurodegenerative disorder? This, this child with a new onset sort of toe walking, is this a neurodegenerative disorder? Mm. Um, and um, for example, um, the question, is it a Huntington's career, is, is often asked. And um, in the words of House, it never is. Um, but, um, but, but we get asked the question a lot. Yeah. So neuro, neuro, assessing for neurodegenerative disorders is, is pretty common for us. Okay. So I, had, I was scribbling some notes before we started, and one of the things I've written down on my little bit of paper is, what stuff do you see that might surprise us? And you've sort of... Um, hinted at because I think you know I, 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 the kind of ch childhood epilepsy syndrome those sorts of things I have like a, a kind of a, a rough idea that that would present f with you obviously particularly with your background but um, so functional surprising are there other uh, and we maybe go into that in a bit more detail are there other things that that as an adult neurologist I might go really kids get that well um well, uh, yeah, well, I, I mean, it's hard for me to gauge what you would find surprising. Us. <laughs> sure, but, you know, well, after all these years. Um, you're, you're, you're a very knowledgeable, very experienced, very erudite oh, sort of polyglot. So um, I wouldn't think there was anything that would, would, would leap out of the bushes at you. Um, I mean, we see children with MS, for yeah. example. So, and I think that, that, and it, when I, I mean, that doesn't surprise me now, but that, that I did find that quite shocking, I think at some point mm -hmm. in my training and given mm -hmm. that we've got, a, uh, you know, dialing in, a, like we've got medical students, we've got, um, SHOs, we've got registrars mm -hmm. and of course at different stages of training, 
Um, so yeah, inflammatory demyelination and 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 actually MS itself in kids. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, so inflammatory demyelination for us is is actually not that um, uncommon. So mm. um, if we have um, a patient who presents uh, with a new onset encephalopathy, who has a normal CT head. So, I mean, obviously we see we see kids present with encephalopathy who've, who've had trauma or bleeds or, or tumors or, or whatever. But let's say they come into the emergency department with, with a reduced GCS and they've had a head scan and a head scan, the CT head is normal. Um, it actually most often is an acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. Mm. Um, so, so you know, we slap them in the MRI scanner and and, and get a, a diagnosis that way. So, actually, you know, a kind of acute demyelination is is relatively common, much more common than than MS. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, um, we see that. Um, you, you'd probably be surprised how few brain tumors we see mm. when we're investigating neurological disorders, including epilepsy. So. Um, most people leave medical school and, you know, and, and go on into, for example, medical or, or indeed neurology jobs with this idea that, that you know, the, the, the diagnostic paradigm when you're investigating somebody with seizures is that you have to find the tumor. Mm. Um, uh, and um, I have never had a patient present to my outpatient clinic with um, seizures who had a brain tumor. Right. Um, so um, that might surprise you. Yes, of um, yeah, there you go. Um, so we, we, we do sometimes see seizures presenting to the emergency department um, and there'll, there'll be something about the whole presentation that sort of, you know, um, drove them into that different group. And of course, one day I will have a patient who presents to my outpatient uh, clinic with, with epileptic seizures who, who has a brain tumour, but usually not. So and there's lots and lots of kids with epilepsy that don't get head scans. Yeah. And so, so the ones that you pick up with the tumour are presenting how then, Rich? Well, I, so the, their parents tend to have brought them to the emergency department for some reason. So, um, you know, they may have been sort of, you know, ill for a few days with, you know, headaches or, or, or being out of sorts. And then they present with a, a prolonged seizure, which requires buccalmidazolam or, or, or rectal diazepam from an ambulance driver. And they come in and, and it takes them a long time to recover from their seizure. And people are worried about them and they stick them in the scanner. Um, so a bit different to the kind of, you know, one minute seizure in the middle of the night with quick recovery that mm. um, uh, tends to present to outpatients. So um, there'll, there'll be something about the presentation that drives it in a different direction. And I, th and I think certainly from, you know, certainly the teaching that headache is a, uh, is a common symptom of brain tumors, certainly in adults, that's not the case. That's a, a particularly severe well, um, headache is, is rare. Is that, is that, does that kind of well, carry across headache, into kids? Acute headache is very difficult mm. um, because, um, of course, there's almost nothing that apart from, so apart, if, if somebody presents with a headache to the emergency department, um, uh, if they've got a normal neurological examination, if they've got no papilledema, they can still have a brain tumor. Mm. So, um, so the ones with a short history of a bad headache that have come to the emergency department, I find quite difficult. They often get a scan. Mm. Um, but the ones that come and see me in clinic have often had headaches for six, seven months. Um, and uh, so, you know, the fact that their brain hasn't been pushed out through the bottom of their foramen magnum um, suggests that they, they probably don't have, they haven't had seven months of 
raised intracranial pressure. Yeah. Um, and so we, um, uh, so again, we very commonly make diagnoses of, of tension headaches or, or indeed of, of migraine in uh, children, young people, um, without doing head scans. So it sounds like, although the uh, the kind of case mix isn't so massively different, actually, although the underlying kind of uh, conditions driving the presentations might be different. And, and I guess inflammatory demyelination is you're the other side of that coin because you know it's in you it's almost never MS, it's almost always ADEM in a in a dramatic yeah. presentation. Yeah. I think in in us you know, we always, we always get asked to, or ask ourselves the question is it, could it be ADEM? And it almost never is in adults. Um, right, right. Yeah, and and yeah, yeah. as f- frequently as either MS or one of these kind of uh, animal spectrum disorders or a kind of anti-mog kind of, uh, kind of antibody driven kind of oddities. Um, t- tell us a bit about the, um, the functional stuff. Uh, I mean, we, we see a heck of a lot of that. In, in adult clinics presenting in a whole variety of ways um <clears throat> you know typical like classically dissociative attacks and kind of non-epileptic things but also um functional movement disorders functional paralysis dystonia all sorts of weird mm-hmm. and wonderful things what what's a sort of typical or you know what are the the kind of functional presentations in kids well pretty similar pretty similar so um i guess the uh the the um the, the most important two would be um, kind of uh, non-epileptic seizure disorders and um, flattened paralysis of the lower limbs. Mm. Um, uh, so uh, that, 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 those are probably the most common. Um, we, we see some, you know, kind of, um, you know, presenting with um, kind of, uh, we, we see kind of mental health psychogenic mental health presentations um so um i'm trying to work out what what, what, the best way of describing that but imagine somebody who um wished to portray that they had an an acute onset psychosis but they had no idea what an acute onset psychosis looked like so they did it badly right that's the way it would um uh it would uh sort of um present so kind of you know gibberish and kind of um uh, lurching and um sort of you know rapid barking sounds and and things like that you know n- not something you'd recognize as being a sort of um uh, psychosis right. so um we we see that we see that a fair bit and we try to make a diagnosis really more on the basis of of making a positive diagnosis by by recognizing um uh, kind of positive evidence of a, of a psychogenic presentation rather than by kind of excluding organic causes. Mm. So um, so if somebody presents with a flaccid paralysis, that means that they have to kind of physically pick up their own legs to move them, so they have essentially zero power, but they can st- stand and bear weight, then we will think, okay, well, that, that is a discrepancy between the functional and the objective, and ergo, it, it, it cannot have an organic basis. So, um, uh, and we're very, very, very hot on looking at video footage of um, seizure disorders. Uh, So, even if there's a very good history of um, a a kind of bilateral convulsive epileptic seizure with 
um, sort of breathing, swallowing, discoordination, and um, you know all, all the correct sort of you know eye movements that one might see in a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Um, we, we we are very hot on capturing episodes in order to make a, a diagnosis because um, uh, we see it we see a lot of uh, psychogenic presentations, particularly in teenagers. When you're approaching, I mean, and I, we uh, I think if you're doing it well in adult neurology, you would have the same sort of thing making it a positive diagnosis looking for the features that would be suggestive of a functional presentation rather than kind of just doing loads of tests to try and exclude it and telling people what it isn't um i think obviously the discussion that we have with patients is massively different in with an adult you know because you're having that direct mm -hmm. kind of conversation um, yeah, yeah, just yeah. with that individual and you know often there are other family members to try and bring on board as well but yeah mm -hmm. is it you know do, do you approach it differently in kids i don't know i mean well i think different people um within pediatrics approach it in different ways um so i think that idea of getting people on board is really important so you know um through a process of discussion so so um so i often uh say that um you know, actually, um, 19 of the last 20 people that I've seen with um, uh, psychogenic disorders um, haven't had some kind of deep, dark um, uh, psychological skeleton in the closet uh, that, that we've ever identified. And it's not important to identify that. It, the important thing is to get them better. Mm. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm not surprised that actually we don't know why um, uh, this particular child is having these episodes um, rather than any other child, for example, in their class. Um, uh, but um, but we can make a confident diagnosis, and you know that we believe them. That we you know we know that they're not bunging it on. That um, we um, uh, we understand that this is you know incredibly challenging and very distressing for them. But the good news is that we can usually get them better. Um, and um, uh, you know you've won that particular discussion when the young person um, agrees that, that it is possible that they may have um, been experiencing um, episodes arise as a consequence of, of stress or a pattern of behavior that's arisen for, for reasons that we don't really understand. Mm. Yeah, and actually, I think um, we're, we're covering functional stuff actually in another couple of weeks with um one of our neuropsychologists who's got an interesting approach to things but yeah i think that kind of uh not going straight for the um deep dark past and recent stresses and things is quite important because i think you, for starters people put the barriers up don't they very early on if you if you try and cut corners like that and maybe the first mm -hmm. consultation mm -hmm. isn't always the best time to do that anyway um you're, yeah, you're better off just kind of credentialing yourself as a, an expert and recognizing that you've seen this before and that people can get better and all that sort of stuff and just giving it a bit of space well of course none of us are quite as good at uh, credentialing ourselves as experts as you dr archibald <laughs> that's but, um, right like to, i have i have a question i have a question for you on on the video front oh yeah um, so um in adult practice um if you haven't captured an episode which obviously usually be on video footage, but it could be, um, if, if they were frequent episodes, it could be on an EEG. If, it, mm. if you could trigger them with hyperventilation or something like that in clinic, then then that would be a way of capturing them. Um, if you haven't captured an episode, do you make a diagnosis? Oh, um, 
Yeah, sometimes. Um, I think it depends a little bit. I mean, um, they're, they're, the attacks that we kind of see in adulthood are often quite difficult to bring on. Like, I mean, obviously, if, you, if you're pretty sure that these are sort of dissociative, non-epileptic, and they're highly suggestible, and you get a history of kind of, you know, flickering lights on the television, setting them off, and things that are fairly improbable in adult-onset attacks in general, then you might, you know, then you might push hard with sleep-deprived and prolonged EEG recordings and things like that to try and get something, some evidence that the attack, they had a typical attack and the EEG was normal. That's quite useful. Um, but there's there are plenty of patients, I think, where we are still scratching our heads a little bit, um, even perhaps even having seen it on a video. But but you see, if someone gives you a great history um, uh, of a, a generalized tonic clonic seizure, um, you see, in pediatric practice, they're still quite likely to have a psychogenic disorder, um, and um, kind of. So I, I I just wonder if if um, I mean, do you have experience of, of having been bitten by misdiagnosis um, yeah. in, in those ones? Definitely. Um, you know, I've certainly had a, a guy who had a very good history for what sounded to me like focal seizures, um, very stereotyped, you know, very sort of typical kind of focal onset, um, occasion, occasionally sort of generalizing, um, made a diagnosis, um, did initially quite well actually on, on levetiracetam attacks reduced. Then they started to come back, added a second agent. Things were not going well. So we arranged to bring him in for video telemetry, which achieved absolutely nothing for five days except boring him, which is often the case, isn't it? And everything seemed to stop. Um, but I had a really interesting kind of conversation on the day that we took all the leads off. I was having a chat with them with actually some of the medical students and various with me. And, um, and I was saying, look, you know, we haven't been able to capture these attacks, a bit frustrating, et cetera. Um, and he said, like, is there anything else it could be? And I started to talk about dissociative attacks and how sometimes these can happen in people that have had very challenging kind of time. And and then it, then it all came out. And that was about 18 months into this process of basically massively over-treating it. And interestingly, after that, even without any psych, uh, psychological intervention, uh, they improved markedly. <laughs> You know, so definitely right, right, get it right. wrong. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, can, well, we and can get it wrong both ways, obviously. Yeah. Um, well, we sometimes use that as a mind trick, actually. The um, kind of, so you'll be in a consultation with, with you know, the, the, the mum, the grandma, and the, the, the teenager in front of you. Um, and you can, you can just sort of mention to everyone, but particularly looking the teenager in the eye. And um, just kind of, you know what, these episodes often get much better after we've made this diagnosis. Hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, and that often works quite well. I suppose, so here's, here's a lesson from pediatrics. Um, so if you, if, you, if you can, then, uh, you know, never make a diagnosis of, of, of epilepsy without capturing one. Honestly, it, it, it's, it, it, you know, I think it's probably the single biggest thing that has improved our misdiagnosis rate in pediatrics is, is the fact that every human being, um, uh, it, you know, has a video camera on them at all times uh, now. And, and episodes that are too brief or infrequent to be captured on video footage basically are never epileptic. Mm. So, um, so we can basically always get video. I guess if you're, if you're a student living on your own at university, um, 
or if you're an adult living living on your own and you have genuine you know epileptic convulsive seizures then there's no one to video it is there yeah. so um so you know you you can understand that that might be um a real challenge but but where possible i think you know getting video footage as the as the bedrock of of, of diagnosis is is pretty revolutionary yeah there's a, a question has just come in from uh one of our registrars actually basically saying isn't there a danger of missing epilepsy leading to sudep it's a great question um and uh so um daniel um uh i guess the, i guess the question is what do you know about sudep in children <laughs> I've, you, you may get an answer in a minute. Um, we we could we 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 can we can wait. I mean, so um, I can not very um, much. Not very much. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I think. Do you do you insist that they're not allowed to unmute themselves at any point, Doctor Archibald? I, do, I don't um, insist on anything with our trainees. They never listen to me I anyway. See, okay. Yeah. 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 There you go. Um, so, um, that, Daniel, you just unmuted yourself for four four milliseconds, which Doctor Archibald doesn't like because it's just. It threatens his position as the centre of attention. Um, so, um, okay, so SUDEP in kids. So, um, uh, neurodevelopmentally normal um, uh, children with epilepsy, um, uh, i.e. walking, talking kids, um, have a very low risk of um, SUDEP. So, um, let's say teenager with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy or childhood absence epilepsy or some of the what used to be called benign epilepsies like benign epilepsy with centrotemporal spikes. They will have a, a, um, an annual incidence of SUDEP of about one in 3,000, um, which is uh, um, very low and, and kind of, you know, lower, for example, than the risk of cop death in the first year of life. Uh, so, um, uh, in in pediatric epilepsy with with neurodevelopmentally normal children, then um, actually we can do far more harm than that with misdiagnosis, with um, misuse of uh, anti-epilepsy medications. Um, as Dr. Archibald has suggested, um, sometimes you can get yourself on a bit of a roll with kind of like one drug, two drugs, three drugs, mm -hmm. referral for for um, epilepsy surgery vagal nerve stimulation, ketogenic diet, you know, there, there's a lot of hazard in misdiagnosis, actually. Um, and, um, and as I say, SUDEP is, is rare. Um, where the, the, the risk is higher, for example, in children with very severe neurodevelopmental disorders, so a, a kind of child with no possibility for mo mobility or communication, who's gastrostomy fed and, and can't manage their own secretions, their risk of, of SUDEP may be um, up to one in a hundred. Uh, per year, um, but actually their risk of sudden death is, is far higher than, than that for, for other reasons, including um, obviously airway and, and, and chest issues. Um, and uh, it, 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 we can, if, if we're very clear about the need for video footage, actually um, it's usually possible to get it, you know, with the next seizure that occurs. Um, so um, if you think about how long it takes to introduce um, medication. So let's say you're going to put somebody on lamotrigine, you might take three months to introduce it. Um, actually, the, um, the, the risk of, of demanding video footage as, as the bedrock of diagnosis is actually pales into insignificance next to the, the benefits from um, uh, making an accurate diagnosis. I think that's a really good point, Rich. And, uh, um, 
And one of the red flags for me sometimes around a diagnosis of epilepsy, and I'm sure the um, guys on the call will, would probably recognize this, is the patient where you're not sure. Maybe we inherit a lot of patients with a historical diagnosis of ep epilepsy that's maybe slightly different in pediatric practice, not unheard of, I imagine, even there. Um, and you start to question this diagnosis of this patient, um, and you therefore suggest that it would be a good idea if somebody could video the attacks. And the message comes back over many months of follow-up that it's just impossible to capture these attacks in some shape or form. Um, admittedly, sometimes it's impossible to email the damn thing to somebody within the NHS. Well, <laughs> if, yes, so you can have problems with the email system, but, um, but um, uh, good tip for you, the WeTransfer file um, system works well with uh, NHS Net. Right. So if you if you tell people that when they're uploading a big video and they want to send it into your NHS.net um, uh, file, tell them to use WeTransfer. It's not designed for that purpose, but it just works well with it. Um, so uh, yeah, but it's basically never impossible to get it. Um, mm. uh, so um, it sounds like you've laid down a challenge, and the reason that no video footage was forthcoming was because no episodes were happening. Um, uh, you, you may be interested in uh, a leaflet um, on the Eastern Pediatric Epilepsy Network, um, which, you know, is information about video, um, I think it's called. It's in the uh, information for um, information leaflets tab on, on that website. And uh, um, so it talks through all of, the, basically, it, 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 it's the answer to all of those questions in clinic about, um, I can't get video because dot, dot, dot. And, and it ex explains why video is still important and how to do it and all that kind of stuff. And it also contains the uh, paragraph um, uh, episodes which are brief and infrequent are usually not epileptic, which is very, happened to, very, very helpful to have written down in black and white. That's really good advice, I think, Rich. And um, do you think, I mean, we're obviously working in a more virtual world, um, sadly for clinical medicine minute, actually at yeah. the minute, but it does uh, afford an opportunity, I think, for people to send stuff through, uh, even in advance of uh, appointments and mm -hmm. you know, videos coming through of patients having attacks before we've even seen them is incredibly helpful. And we've had a couple of experiences yeah. of that in Teesside recently, just since the COVID yeah. problem. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I will, in, in fairness, this has been new for me as well. So um, uh, I, it's unusual for me to have seen videos before the first consultation, um, but that has been happening reasonably frequently. So I've probably seen about sort of six or seven videos before consultations since the pandemic began. Um, and they've basically been conclusive. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, motor tics, um, non-epileptic paroxysmal disorders of childhood, um, and, uh, and things that look like infantile spasms but weren't. Um, so, you know, actually seeing those before, before the telephone consultation has been, um, r really crucial. So I think that will be the future. What, uh, I mean, it sort of segues nicely into one of my other little kind of scribbled notes in crayon. Um, they won't let me have anything sharper in the house, uh, which is about kind of epilepsy syndromes that are worth an adult neurologist having a, a decent grasp of. I think I, I, I live in, I, I have bad flashbacks to the, the Newcastle Grand Round, Neurology Grand Round, where like every couple of months, 
um, one of the pediatric neurologists would come in and you'd be sitting there as the registrar already nervous. And then you'd be like, oh God, it's the pediatric neurologists and they're absolutely lovely, but I have no chance with this one. And it was, it was one of those kind of hard sink. Now, you know, this is a classic epilepsy syndrome that you'll all know plenty about and you just, your heart sinks even lower. So what, like, you know, we don't, and, and we don't want to put people off and that's the problem with some of these grand rounds, but like, what, what are the important ones for us? God, I, I went to a few adult neurology grand rounds and, um, you guys are mean. Good grief. <laughs> Good grief. Ah, that's some high octane intellectual stuff going on right there. Um, it's nothing like that in pediatric neurology. We're very friendly. Um, so, okay. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Um, I, I, there's two or three things about that. I mean, I guess the first thing is that um, although there are many recognizable um, epilepsy syndromes of childhood, which um, you, you, your friendly pediatric neurologist will ne need to know about, the good thing about being a pediatric neurologist is that most of our patients grow out of epilepsy in childhood. Mm. So in terms of ones that are important for you in, pediatric, in, in adult neurology to know about, then we can take a few of them off the list. So, for example, the most common epilepsy syndrome that we see is childhood absence epilepsy, capital C, capital A, capital E. So that, that basically means that you will have somewhere between the ages of four and nine, the onset of incredibly frequent typical absences lasting, you know, five, 10, 15 seconds um, with automatisms, fumbling, complete loss of awareness, um, but usually not loss of tone. Um, and uh, they will happen a hundred times a day. And if you um, hyperventilate them, they will almost always have one. And um, uh, on an EEG, you'll see three per second spike and wave. Mm. So, um, so nice and easy um, diagnosis. Children are usually pretty good neurodevelopmentally, um, and uh, they almost always grow out of it in childhood. So, um, you know that that's that, that that's totally bread and butter for me. But you'll probably not see those patients coming through into um, adult neurology. If you do, then they probably have sort of, you know, an unusual sort of genotype, not that we recognize a genotype really for childhood absence epilepsy, but there's probably mm. something about them that kind of means that they're, they're, they're having persistent absences into adulthood, and um, uh, which is why they are being transitioned to you. So um, I guess there's two main groups of... Um, of, of recognizable epilepsies that you may see coming through into adult practice. There's, there's the juvenile onset ones, and then there's the sort of severe genetic epileptic encephalopathies um, that um, are very severely um, affected um, in, uh, um, in infancy and childhood, and then they um, still continue to have seizures um, through to adulthood. Daniel mentions that you get lots of referrals with query absences. Um, and of course, um, uh, typical absences um, occur in other epilepsy syndromes apart from childhood absence epilepsy, capital, capital C, capital A, capital E. Um, one of those would be juvenile absence epilepsy, capital J, capital A, capital E. Um, so um, juvenile um, absence epilepsy uh, tends to present in that the age group sort of between nine and, and, and adulthood with um, somewhat fewer episodes per day, perhaps 15, 20 episodes. They can be a bit longer, so they may be sort of 20, 30 seconds. 
um, uh, they can have that sort of atypical absence feel. So um, some maintained awareness um, at, at times during the, um, the absences. Their EEG is a bit more ragged, so it's not a sort of regular three per second um, spike and wave. Um, uh, so it can be sort of, you know, 2.5 um, hertz poly spike and wave, sometimes spike and wave with a bit of poly spike. Um, they can have um, photosensitivity. Um, that's not particularly common in juvenile absence epilepsy, but it, but it happens more frequently than it does in child absence epilepsy. And they're less likely to, to hyperventilate in clinic. So um, uh, juvenile absence epilepsy is, is reasonably common. Um, and those patients um, are, are more likely to, to continue through into um, adult life. I guess um, one, one kind of consistent theme with the juvenile onset epilepsies is that um, the, the reason they persist into adulthood is because there isn't too much change in your brain between being a teenager and being an adult. Um, so I, I think that, that most um, childhood epilepsies arise um, because of um, either something um, sort of physical within the brain, so either a structural lesion um, or, you know, physical brain damage, if you were, um, uh, or, or a sort of change in, in, in the structure of the brain, like um, in, as the brain myelinates, for example, then, you know, conduction of um, uh, seizures may increase and therefore um, seizure disorders can become clinically apparent. The other thing, of course, is that genes switch on and off. Um, and there's probably no greater time in your life when genes will switch on and on and off other than, than around puberty. Um, uh, because, um, you know, you don't have much need for sort of genes for randiness, for example, in, um, in, in infancy, but they become increasingly essential in um, young adulthood. So, um, so because all those changes have happened in teenagers, the juvenile absence epilepsies and the um, juvenile myoclonic epilepsies will occur, um, will, will, are less likely to um, uh, y y y resolve spontaneously before adulthood. I think the um, other thing, that, coming back to Daniel's point as well, is that I think what we also get um, are referrals of adults with new onset funny blank spells where they're you know just you know they're and they are quote unquote absent but mm -hmm. it's not an absence and um i'm always very careful to try and be you know to be clear what we're actually talking about in that and i my personal feeling is that there should be no case of a 40 year old developing absence seizures unless they have been undiagnosed for 35 years um already yeah, but even but if it's thirty-five years, then he started having them when he was five, and um, it, it, in which case he would have grown out of them by about eight. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so I think we so never, then, you know, that's never a thing in adulthood. Um, well, it, 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 and the thing is, is that you, if if you're a betting person, you you play exactly the same game in pediatric clinic. Mm. Um, so in my clinic, it's about fifteen to one. Um, uh, so when people ask, "Is this an absence seizure?" then um, fourteen out of every fifteen, the answer will be no. Um, but, you know, we're seeing um, lots of daydreaming, we're seeing lots of autistic kids who have kind of quite prolonged kind of, um, you know, uh, fugue states or, or kind of, um, you know, non-epileptic blank spells mm. 
Um, and uh, so, you know, we we have we have about twelve or thirteen different differentials for the kid who looks off into the distance and doesn't appear to pay any attention. Um, and um, you'll recognize, of course, that um, if you say to a six-year-old boy, come on, put your shoes on, mate. It's time to go to school. You've got to put your shoes on. Hello, hello, it's time to go to school. Put your <laughs> shoes on. Hello, hello, put your shoes on. Not a sausage. Not a sausage. He's not listening to you. He doesn't care. Um, uh, but people think that that's abnormal, and it ain't. No. I'm, gl- I'm glad that's not abnormal because my entire household is like that. There you go. No, you heard it here. I'm, I, I'm the expert. It's um, uh, completely normal, dude. I think I know the answer to this based on a couple of things you've already said, Rich, but I guess, you know, the the, the point of transition into adult services varies a bit age-wise, doesn't it? Um, and it, yeah. a little bit on kind of like, you know, wishes of the patient as well, I guess, and where they end up getting referred. But say for sake of argument, you got referred somebody who was like 15, nearly 16, and there's a point where they could go into adult services or pediatric services just about. Um, and this was a query sort of epilepsy sort of referral, like a, maybe a sort of JME type flavor to it, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. Um, and I know my approach, like what my approach would tend to be, but I'm interested in how you would approach that as a pediatric neurologist. Cause I'm not, you know, I'm just a jobbing general neurologist and not even an epilepsy person really specifically, but so how would you approach that? Um, and then I try and make sense of that and see if I can improve. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, okay. So, um, well, there's a couple of things. Um, firstly, sometimes, um, what would make clinical sense doesn't necessarily mean to say that um, local NHS services follow um, follow follow you know a, a common sense pathway. So um, in most areas that I've worked in, um, if you've got a 15 year old who presents with a new onset epilepsy, they're pediatric until they turn 16. Hmm. So even if there's just three three months left, then um, we will usually have to m- make the assessment potentially start on treatment and then and then hand over um uh so um uh, i think i think that it, you know it would make most sense of course to do that in conjunction with your ad- adult colleague um and the other thing that you just mentioned of course is you said that you're a, you're a general neurologist and n- not particularly interested in 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 epilepsy and of course that's a common um, that's a common phenotype amongst your adult neurology brethren, isn't it? So, so um, in, in Cambridge, you can't move for adult neurologists who are interested in multiple sclerosis. Um, <laughs> they're everywhere. Um, but um, so, you know, um, every, everyone's interested in something that isn't common. <laughs> um, but so, so, so finding someone who is interested in, in epilepsy is the kind of cornerstone, really, of that transition process. So, so as a, if you work in pediatrics, you're always keeping your eye out for the person who's most interested in epilepsy, so you can get your claws in, and then they can help you with the transition of your patients. And I'm very. I, lucky I should that state got... that although I, I'm, I am interested, I might just not be very good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, fair enough. But yeah, fair enough. But you know, actually, there are relatively few um, uh, epileptologists in adult practice mm, yeah. um, within the eastern region, let alone Cambridge. Um, uh, so, um, you know, epilepsy is, is, is not the, um, 
the subspeciality du jour in um, certainly in the eastern region for, for adult neurologists. So it's really important actually to find somebody who who is interested um, because you know then then um, you know you'll 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 be able to sensibly hand over care of your your patient. Um, it, How do you now, approach the kind of investigation or like I'm think I'm thinking specifically about the consultation with. Uh, somebody in there who's maybe 15, 16, um, maybe had like eight, one or two potential generalized seizures. And as you're digging in, you're starting to hear that maybe they're a bit sort of myoclonic jerky first thing in the morning. And that's more than that should be. And maybe there's a hint of something that was an absence or, or a, a, you know, when they were a bit younger. I'm just, I'm just interested in like, are there any kind of tips in clinic that, that you find over the years kind of useful ways into that sort of story or okay. or how would you approach it investigation wise that might be different well, so the, the um the kind of archetypal story the one that they always put in the clinical exams is about the the, the teenager that went to a party had a few cans of beer went to bed at two o'clock in the morning and had to get up at six to do their paper round or something like that um and and the weird thing is is that that you know actually that is very often the story we get in clinic Mm. Um, so it's an odd example of how um, uh, sometimes your patients have read the textbook. So, um, so we, we do hear that, that that particular story around the the, the kind of you know big fits. Um, and uh, the key into getting a history of morning myoclonus is, is, as you say, is definitely to ask about it. Um, I, a, a lot of the teaching that I had initially and and some of our, our kind of national courses. Um, uh, use video footage of um, young teenage boys um, knocking over cereal bowls with their spoon and swearing, um, and and so you know. And the thing is, is that obviously, if you if if that's what you've got in your head, then then those are the questions you'll ask, and and that's how you'll get the story. But um, I think the the thing that that girls do in the morning that they really really notice that really sort of messes them up is that when they're doing their eye makeup, that they skew it up their face. Um, so with the the, the myoclonus, it, it it affects their motor skills to such an extent that their, their mascara or or um, other eye makeup implements that I don't have a name for, um, it goes in their eye or, or, or skews up their face, and that, that that's quite a sort of sensitive bit of of history taking. So I think some of the sort of um, historical teaching on this has been quite sort of teenage boy focused, but um, uh, I, I found eye makeup to be a a, a good question to ask in terms of um, uh, um, getting the history from your um, uh, teenage girls presenting with, with Jeremy. Um, I asked, um, sorry to interrupt, Rich, but I asked Reese Thomas, we did um, a chat a couple of weeks ago about epilepsy, um, similar sort of thing around sort of Jeremy and, and uh, about like how do you get a story of absence out of somebody who's maybe not having them now or if they are happening are really infrequent. I find that really hard to, to kind of capture a story that is convincingly suggestive of absence. Is, is, is that a failing yeah, on my I mean, part? Well, no, I think, I think that is the hardest bit to, to pick out of a history. So, so with infrequent absences such as can be seen in JME, then um, it can be difficult to get a history of that. Um, uh, young kids, as I say, children with childhood absence epilepsy who are having literally hundreds a day, um, uh, they often don't know that they're having them. Hmm. 
so they don't have so so actually it's not something that produces a kind of unpleasant feeling um um, one one diagnosis I made of childhood absence epilepsy was a kid who was being um, filmed in school during book week. And uh, so he was being filmed reading a, a paragraph from a book. And it was kind of like sort of, you know, um, uh, Twas Brillig and the Slivy Toves did Gar and Gim... Uh, or Mimsy were the Borogrove and Monrath's outgrade. And um, uh, so, and that was the first time that anybody had recognised that something weird had happened, and it had been caught on video. Hmm. So, essentially, the only absence that anybody had only had ever noticed this kid had was captured on video, and that's what I saw. Um, but he himself hadn't hadn't recognised that he was having them at all. So, I think actually taking a history in in first person for absences can be quite difficult. Um, uh, so, you're really looking for an eyewitness account. Um, and uh, in the younger kids, then behavioural arrest is the, is is the kind of cornerstone. It really is like the, you know, during doing something active, then it's like hitting the pause button. Um, mm. But unfortunately, with the older patients, then um, sometimes actually the onset of an absence can be a bit more insidious. Okay, that's useful. Um... What about, I mean, the other thing that Reese was talking about, which I hadn't thought to ask in the history, in in the recovery from a uh, like a tonic-clonic generalized seizure, was that how quickly could you use your phone again? Because um, mm-hmm. obviously that's yep. kind of a ubiquitous kind of appendage to, well, pretty much all of us mm-hmm. these days. Mm-hmm. This idea of like, you know, could you text, like you know, as, as a way of like, when did your brain reboot? Are there any kind of good little kind of clinic questions like that that you've squirreled away that you think, oh... Well, I mean, I think so. Um, very often, um, I, the, the reason that I'm really probing into awareness um, uh, is, you know, if I've got a history of a sort of four-limb convulsive seizure, and um, and they're telling me that they were awake or that their brother was annoying or that you know this is a paramedic said this whilst the episode was ongoing, then you know that's just one of those things that keys me into that sort of non-epileptic story. Um, I, the the thing about my patients is that they almost always come with an eyewitness. Mm. Um, uh, so so you know, recognised seizures almost always have um, usually a, a parent with them, but of course it can be a um, a teacher or or friend, and so they can usually tell us you know how long it took for for recovery. Um, I'm never that sure um, how useful. Um, time to recovery is in terms of, of diagnosis. Um, I, certainly, I worry if, if they haven't recovered fully after an hour, I worry a lot about that. And so, you know, um, uh, you know, we worry about intracranial infection in, in kids who haven't re- recovered after um, an hour after a seizure. But um, I, I've seen video footage of a child having a genuine, you know, four-limb convulsive seizure with color change and breathing, swallowing, discoordination, and the seizure stopped, and they've gone into a cuddle with with a parent nearly instantly. Hmm. So, um, like, sort of seconds from uh, um, seizure finishing to into cuddle. So I'm, I'm not sure that, um, uh, that it's all that helpful in terms of um, making a diagnosis. Okay. Um, while we're while we're popping papanomonic bubbles, um, I don't know, in, in adult practice, um, what do you feel about... Um, urinary incontinence and tongue biting we are completely ambivalent about those um, we don't we don't find them in the least bit helpful i think 
we don't we don't find them helpful in pediatrics as well but um do, do, that's changed since we were at medical school it certainly has i mean i think another thing that's changed since we were at medical school is is the use of anti-epileptic drugs in terms of mm -hmm. the choices mm -hmm. and particularly you know like i can remember us getting taught um that it was generalized seizures valproate focal seizures carbamazepine and those were your basically two that you had to remember and then there were yeah. other ones obviously um uh we we use hardly any of those now i think um for, for a lot of very good reasons um but certainly when we were talking about kind of prepping this session a little bit what small amount of prep we did um was one of the things that you talked about <laughs> one of the things you talked about was valproate and wanting to cover something around that and young women rich um mm, and it's mm. a, i mean it is a really thorny issue and we did talk about it a wee bit with reese but um you know what are your observations of of valproate use in in kids and um and adolescents and particularly in, in young women well, I mean, I guess that the, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? So, um, uh, actually, um, so we've got quite a good, lot of, we, we've got plenty of evidence in kids that, that valproate is a better um, medication at stopping seizures than levetiracetam. Mm. Um, uh, and, um, and, and actually, valproate is a really fantastic anti-epileptic drug for, for stopping seizures. Um, and uh, so we use, um, we have historically used a lot of it. Um, uh, we, we've always been careful in uh, children under the age of two because it's not a good drug to give to someone with a mitochondrial disorder. Mm. Um, and of course, um, mitochondrial disorders will be disproportionately represented um, in, in children under the age of two. And, and of course, your neck of the woods is the, is the sort of national center for, for the sort of mitochondrial cytopathies, et cetera. So um, Newcastle is a, a notable institution for that. Yeah. Um, so, um, so really, over the age of two, then um, we, we've used it like Smarties, to be honest. Um, and it is basically, it's the, the best drug at stopping seizures in childhood absence epilepsy. Um, and, uh, and we've used a, a lot of it in, in all, all sorts of other disorders. And actually quite commonly used it in, in focal seizure disorders as well. Um, and, of course, it's a really good drug for um, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. Hmm. Um, in in terms of stopping seizures, um, so it's always had a, a side effect profile, um, and and at forty percent of children actually get some problems with attention and concentration um, with uh, sodium valproate, which given the the sort of background rates of attention and concentration difficulties in children with epilepsy, means that, that that that's quite difficult. So we've 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 always got to be very careful about those sort of neurodevelopmental and, and kind of medication comorbidities. Um, uh, but um, but it's comfortably the best drug at stopping seizures, and in particular the myoclonus in juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. Um, so uh, then you, you've got the problems of uh, the sort of fetal valproate syndrome. Um, so that's been known about since the year that I was born, which was uh, 1974. Um, uh, and you, you were about 10 at, uh, in 1974, weren't you, Dr. Archibald? Um, um, no, 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 Dr. Brown. You, um, you, and, you, and I, you and I were sired the same year. I know, but you, you were postgrad or something. Anyway, you look very good on it with your um, uh, healthy diet. 
So, um, uh, teratogenicity has always been recognized as a problem with valproate. That's been recognized since 1974. In fact, the, the, the risk to the fetus of, of neurodevelopmental abnormalities, such as, as autism, for example, um, is about four times higher than the risk of major congenital abnormalities. So, um, and that's rather newer information. Mm. Um, and uh, so coupled really with quite a lot of advocacy, um, the, uh, there have been huge changes in, um, uh, in, in both the perception of, of sodium valproate as a safe drug for, for women of childbearing age, and, and now also basically legislative changes. So the MHRA have um, produced very strict guidance on the use of valproate in girls. Um, and of course, that, that, that's to the benefit of, um, of fetuses at risk. Um, uh, when it first came out, the guidance was very strict. So it was basically no girls can be started on valproate. Um, and um, uh, with the exception of those who have a kind of TTT um, uh, pregnancy plan in, in place, mm. um, which, as you're probably aware, um, involves basically either um, an implant or um, an intrauterine device, a coil. Mm. Um, and, and the MHRA were seriously advocating that um, girls under the age of 10 should have a coil if they were started on sodium valproate, which is just utterly ridiculous. Wow. Um, so that has changed now. Um, so basically, um, uh, children under the age of 10 can be started on valproate with appropriate discussion about how it would be an inappropriate drug to use um, if they achieve childbearing age. Um, uh, children between 11 and 13 um, uh, need to have the kind of you know annual form signed. They need to be fully informed about the risks to uh, a baby of of pregnancy. And um, uh, then from 13 onwards, or from uh, the onset of um, uh, menarche, um, then uh, they have to have a PPT um, pregnancy plan in place. Um, uh, so it means basically if we're going to use valproate, then they do need to have uh, basically either a coil or an implant in, in place. There is exceptions for um, uh, young girls for whom it is considered um, extremely unlikely that they will ever get pregnant. Um, and uh, so, um, so, you know, children, young ladies with very, very severe neurodevelopmental disorders would, mm. would, would, would fall into that category. Um, and I think that that's, written, that's not saying that it would be biologically impossible, but that it would be, um, uh, well, illegal. Mm. Um, so um, the problem with this is that um, actually um, it means that lots of girls who would benefit from sodium valproate um, uh, don't, don't have the possibility um, of kind of acceptably receiving that treatment. Um, because they're not willing to have an implant or a, a, a coil. Um, and, and so that there is now a sort of growing argument that there's a degree of discrimination, really, um, uh, in, in, in the sort of rules around sodium valproate. So um, in, in practice, what this means is that we use um, kind of all po possible medication approaches to treating juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, for example, um, that don't include valproate. So we are... Um, so we use levetiracetam, we use uh, lamotrigine, and we, we use other sort of newer epilepsy medications. But 
none of them work quite as well as sodium valproate and switching off the myoclonus. Do you think the pendulum's going to swing back a little bit? Uh, well, it, not. It, it, I think the thing is, it, it, it's about advocacy, isn't it? Mm. Um, there's quite a powerful um, advocacy group uh, in favour, so effectively, which has caused the pendulum to swing to protection of, 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 of the fetus. Um, but now there, there are lots of young ladies who are more vulnerable. Um, and the honest truth is that in this country, the, the epilepsy charities are not well joined up. So um, you could probably name five epilepsy, five national epilepsy charities off the top of your head. And um, it's very much like the people's front of Judea in there. <laughs> yeah, it does sometimes feel a bit like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, the there was a I was chatting to some of our redshirts before this about what we want to talk about, and we we touched on it a little bit, which is the the challenges of transition um, from mm -hmm. pediatric mm -hmm. to adult care. I feel <clears throat> I feel basically like I let down any patient and their family that comes to adult care in my clinic uh simp if 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 for no other reason than the frequency with which i can see them in a clinic is um is is awful i always assume in comparison to the access they have in the pediatric service uh, so i i might be lucky to see them every six months um maybe nine months actually in some of my review clinics is, is about standard you know what's the standard pattern in a pediatric clinic and and how yeah. do you how do you do that better well i think if you're seeing um if you're seeing every pediatric patient that's transitioned to your care um every six months you're doing much better than m most adult neurologists around the country um so um, that, that's that's not too shabby, Doctor Archibald. Okay. Um, so so we you know in stable patients, then we may see them on a six monthly basis. Actually, um, obviously we, we we see them as as often as necessary when we're initiating treatment, making diagnosis and investigations, all that kind of stuff. But stable patients sometimes do um, get seen on on six monthly review. Um, uh, so so that's not too bad. But do you see all the patients um, with epilepsy at um, at, at, at adult neurology level, you, you don't discharge them back to the GP or off to other. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I don't know because I mean, maybe I don't get referred. The ones I don't see, obviously enough, uh, but certainly the ones that get referred to me, uh, I've, often because I'm a movement disorder neurologist, often I'm getting ones with, I don't know, like cerebral palsy, just like severe dystonia, yeah. kind of movement disorders, neurodevelopmental things where epilepsy might be a component yeah, yeah. as well. Um, yeah. And I think often those those patients, obviously, as, as as we'll all know, have severe ongoing care needs. And I feel like like discharging that sort of person. No, no, yeah, 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 yeah. pointless. Well, but that 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 I I would say that those are the ones that do get follow up within um, adult neurology services. Mm. So, but it's 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 the walking talking. Um, patients who 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 want to go to college and then get a job and you know buy a house and live independently and get married and have children and all that kind of stuff. Um, my my feeling is that, that across the country that that they they often do get uh, discharged from specialist um, neurology services um, and and that therefore sort of nationally transition is is missing a trick. So I think you're you're kind of you're seeing a subsection of the um, patients who are transitioned with epilepsy and, and they really do need 
specialist care because they have quite complex um, uh, um, needs, both both in terms of uh, things like mobility and nutrition and, um, as you say, movement disorder management, as well as the epilepsy. Um, so, uh, so I, I think I think your patients probably getting quite a good deal. Well, I think you can you can you can um, you can um, polish you know, my halo. Buff, buff <laughs> your buff your nails on your on your shirt and be be, be jolly pleased with yourself. Um, are you are you sort of suggesting, Rich, from what you're saying, that do you feel that those more stable patients, um, mm. you're sort of do do you think they need more follow up? Yeah, I do, I do. Um, so the thing is, is that um, <coughs> not all they're often discharged because they're not having seizures anymore uh, yeah. on medication, but they have loads of problems. Hmm. Um, and and there's a sort of you know so w when we when we're seeing children with well controlled epilepsy, um, uh, obviously we're thinking of, uh, along neurodevelopmental lines, but we are also thinking about things like sort of um, you know uh, diagnosable neurodevelopmental disorders and psychiatric problems. And um, actually, you know, n nobody is considering those in the adults with you know well controlled epilepsy. So things like ADHD, autism, and depression are really common in young adults with um, with well-controlled epilepsy, um, and um, and all of those things um, are crying out for kind of good management. So you know, kind of you know, screening for those things in in clinic and and referring on to appropriate services or, or managing appropriately is incredibly important. We 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 see that um, the suicide rate is. Um, 27 times higher in um, young adults with epilepsy and depression than it is in the general population. Wow. So, um, uh, and depression is, is very common in um, young, young adults with epilepsy. Um, it's often under-recognized and um, it's quite straightforward to treat. So actually medication doesn't really work in um, kind of young children with um, depression, but it works brilliantly in young adults. So um, you know, just just you know, you can you can save lives with kind of you know good multidisciplinary, thoughtful follow up of of young adults with um, even well controlled epilepsy. Okay, I think we feel. I mean, maybe there's a, a sense that um, we maybe feel a bit out of our depth with. ADHD, autism, those sorts of things that maybe as an adult neurologist, that's, you know, definitely not in our kind of ballywick. Um, also wonder whether we just... But it's a function, you know, so it's the same brain that produces the epilepsy that produces yeah, yeah. The, the, the sort of neurodevelopmental disorder. So um, kind of, you know, um, it, it is the brain, but it's not my part of the brain. It is kind of, you know, um, uh, not... N n it's not good enough. So um, <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to polish my halo on this because um, we really recognise. What? What is it? Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, I was worried that we had a dead guinea pig, but in fact, it's just a minor injury. Um, it's, it's just uh, sleeping. <laughs> yes. Beautiful plumage. I thought um, you were just doing another little mini absence there for a moment. No, 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 no. So normally when people walk in from the garden and start crying, then they, it's usually a dead guinea pig because we've right. got loads of them. But, um, <laughs> but fortunately, there's no, there's no disaster. That, anyway, that, will, that would ruin my evening. Um, you were bullet polishing your halo. 
Yes. So we recognize that in pediatric epileptology uh, that um, ADHD and autism, for example, are vastly underdiagnosed. So, so they're not well screened for in our services either. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, these are, these are disorders that are, are, are easily treatable. So, you know, one of the things that we are trying to do as part of the kind of, as you say, you know, regular follow-up of um, patients with epilepsy who, who may have well-controlled seizures is to screen better for mental health disorders and neurodevelopmental disorders and, and manage them because it's hugely important in terms of outcomes. Um, if we don't recognize this in childhood, then they end up in jail, they get divorced, they, um, uh, they, they, they don't have a job, they, um, you know, um, more likely to, um, to, to, to have poor quality of life. Um, and, and, you know, by properly recognizing and treating these things, actually we can make a big difference to their long-term outcome. I mean, it's not a massive stretch to say that um, when we hand over their care to adult services, that obviously those things need to be continued. So um, I don't think I'm saying that we've got all the answers that we're doing things perfectly, but um, probably on both sides of the uh, Andover Clinic, we um, need to have ambition to do better. Yeah. Where does transition well? I mean, like, are there places that, I mean, you may say your own centre, um, you know, we have major issues, obviously, at, uh, at Teesside, just, I mean, at the minute with just, yeah, I mean, obviously trying to switch services back on post-coronavirus, but there's there's almost a bit of a reboot going on in some services where we're trying to think, well, you know, okay, we've had a hard reset now, What like, can we do anything differently? Is there anywhere we should be looking uh to to say well these guys have got their heads screwed on they've resourced it properly okay um well um there are so um alderhay in liverpool would be one example of where they've they've done, they've done it really well and i think that they've resourced it properly out of just they've they've, they've fluked a lot of goodwill from everybody involved and and you know I, I don't think that they've necessarily um uh, had it better commissioned but, mm. but they, 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 for example, have, have published on, on how well they do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, uh, okay, so the thing is, is that um, you don't need to aim for gold standard. You just need to aim for better. Mm. Um, so um, it, it, I think it's helpful to think of um, transition as being a kind of longitudinal process and then a handover clinic as being the sort of the culmination of that. So, so you, you should start transition at the age of 12, um, and that's all that kind of preparation for, um, um, thank you, that'd be great. I'm being offered a cup of tea. It's awesome. Um, no, 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 it's cool. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, she, she's nearly an adult, so she can work a kettle. It's okay, everyone. Um, Which uh, one of the five children uh, is that? Um, that is Daisy Brown, ah. uh, the, the eldest. And, um, uh, but she, she's, been, she's been making uh, tea for me since she was seven. So, um, uh, um, you know, that, 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 that's the sort of negligent parent that I am. Um, <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Uh, so um, uh, the transition is a process where you build autonomy, you know, so teaching young people about the importance of taking their medication, talking about things like SUDEP, for example, Daniel, that's very important. Um, uh, thinking about things like driving and jobs and uh, holiday insurance and scuba diving and, you know, um, prognosis and um, sleep and sex and all those sorts of things. So, you know, that, that's a process that starts, should start at the age of 12. And then, you know, three or four years later, you get to a handover clinic 
and you do that properly with kind of you know appropriate representation usually of sort of doctor and specialist nurse from from both sides of the adult and pediatric um, landscape now um, my national epilepsy organization um, did a, an audit on this really um, across the whole country and we found that the median age at which people started the transition process was 15. Mm. So, um, so you know, it, 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 although some people were starting at 12 and some people were starting at 13, it's probably those bastards in all day. Um, uh, <laughs> then um, it, uh, um, y we can all obviously do better. So, you know, if people come away with that bigger and just think, okay, we're going to start a transition, a structured transition process years earlier, that would be great. Um, but then from your perspective, from the adult neurology um, perspective, what have you got to do? Basically, you've got to think about, okay, making links with the, the, the pediatric neurology, pediatric epilepsy services, um, uh, uh, you know, um, have cups of coffee with fellow um, doctors and nurses, you know, across the divide and, and plan that you have like, you know, physical handover clinics whereby, um, uh, you know, um, they, they get to sit in the same room as members of the, the of, of both teams. Um, so trusts don't like that because they don't get paid twice for two consultants sitting in the room at the same time. Mm. Um, but clearly it's really important for communication. Yeah, and I'm sort of anticipating, I'm, I'm envisaging that scene from uh, Jurassic Park. I don't know if you remember the one where, you know, they, they lower the cow into the enclosure. Um, yeah. You know, the, the hidden T-Rex devours it. And I feel like that, I feel like as an adult neurologist, if I was kind of, you know, <laughs> descending in into the pediatric clinic, that's how I'd feel a little bit, but yeah. Well, um, but, but you see, um, but imagine that the cow came and sat down in a, in a, in a nice environment and was brought, you know, kind of like home baked cookies and, um, uh, thank you, Daisy Brown. Um, and a cup, cup of, tea. of tea. There you go, <laughs> see? Um, uh, so Im imagine that they brought you kind of you know millionaire shortbread and um, salted caramel um, uh, cakes and, and and red velvet cake and really just kind of like you in, in, instead of being swamped by velociraptors that you were just being gently submerged under kind of you know pastiche danata and other delicious things to, to, to eat with your coffee. You know that's what it's like basically. If you if you're an adult neurologist and you come to a pediatric environment, then you just get treated like royalty and showered with gifts. Mm. So, you know, um, you, sh you should get involved. It's I'm in the wrong gig, Rich. Definitely. Talk, talk to Tim Ham in, uh, in, in Cambridge. He'll tell you, <laughs> you know, that, that he's been treated like a king. Well, I, I may well do that. But I, I think it's, we were talking about this actually in Teesside recently. And, um, you know, and I know that we've got some people on the call actually who are, are kind of interested in that. And so that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it. Because I think, you know, we, we, we obviously focus in training on um conditions and diagnosis and investigation and treatment and all that sort of stuff and the, the bit that none of us are ever taught as or very rarely anyway is like mm. service structure and you know how to make things work and how to make things happen and you know building bridges and and not setting fire to them and that's yeah that's kind of that's half yeah. the job isn't it that is that is well. Um, I mean, I feel like we, you know, I've, I've really just laid out my strategy um, for you. So it's, it's mostly around coffee and and you know with supplemental cakes as well. Um, I think that uh, works for a lot of things. Yeah, but I mean, um, uh, um, in general, 
Um, in your medical career, um, have you ever found that burning a bridge was ultimately a wise option? No, no. Thou shalt never burn a bridge. Um, so, <laughs> I have burnt a few, but I've never, I've okay. never felt that it was productive in the end. I've, I've, I, I, I've written, I've written emails with the word moron in more than once, <laughs> but I've never sent them. So, um, so, so, you, you, you know, um, so relationships are hugely important here, and I would uh, go so far as to say that um, most of the successful transition clinics that I've been involved with both here and in Australia, in, in, in multiple hospitals in this country, have, have probably been based to a greater extent on goodwill and um, working in the best interest of the patients rather than on uh, commissioning. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, when you are making the um, salted caramel um, millionaire shortbread, then um, the operations manager for your clinical business unit or division or, or whatever they're called in your hospital, um, it, 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 you know, the cake has their name on it. Okay, so so you have to you you have to bring people on board at all sorts of levels in order to to get this. And 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 the magic words are, oh, I don't know how we're going to pay for it, but just do it. And you say, yeah, yeah that's fine, because um, nobody is going to examine that decision in the next 85 years. So um, let's just crack on and deliver good service for, for, for young people. The, the happiest moment I had in my kind of bridge building career was I was trying to set up a, a psychosis service for the Parkinson's patients and used clozapine for them. And uh, I was having a very tough time of that. And I was sitting in a, I don't know how many times I went down to sit at the mental health trust in various meetings to try and kind of lobby for this change. And, and mostly what you get is kind of, um, fobbed up with with the we need a business case sort of thing for that and the tiny piece of your heart dies when somebody asks you for a business case and i was just sitting in this room there was the one of the medical directors of the trust was there and was talking about the psychosis problems in parkinson's and clozapine and the inevitably the you know pharmacy leads were like well you know how many patients is this going to be it's a slippy slope we need a business case and we need to cost this and do we have the resource And and the medical director just said so just to clarify, like Archie, these patients have, you have patients with Parkinson's, they have a mental health problem. Is that right? Yes. And they have like psychosis and hallucinations and it's devastating. And I said, yes. And they have dementia and anxiety and depression. Yes. Uh, and he said, so, okay, so these are patients with significant mental health problems that you are managing in-house and I said, yes. And he went, and we are a mental health trust and we are commissioned by the local commissioners to provide psychosis and mental health interventions for patients. And he looked around the room and said, we don't need a business case for this. This is our job. We're just not doing it. And it all happened really just from that, you know, and that, and I, you know, I've never wanted to kind of leap across the table and, and embrace somebody so much in all my life because I just felt like somebody had finally got it. And it was just like you say, it's that sort of those human factors, I think, that are important. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. You, you know, as long as you, um, so inevitably you'll be doing things that are uh, obvious to you, are right for the patient, um, and that, um, and there will be national guidance that supports it. So there's always a nice guideline that supports the, 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 the thing that you want to do it's just that um it's not currently commissioned 
Mm. Um, so, for example, you know, routine access to co-located mental health care for young adults with um, epilepsy is in nice guidance, but it happens almost nowhere. Um, uh, so um, quite a few tertiary centers have got in-house clinical psychology for the kind of, you know, complex tertiary referrals, um, but almost nowhere at secondary level. Um, uh, so, you know, sits in national guidance and yet nobody does it. Um, mm. So, uh, so you, you'll be able to, to, to justify it on that. So, really, actually, you shouldn't need any more than that. Uh, it's just that you need to make more millionaire shortbread. Okay, um, we're we're coming to the end, I think, of the of the session. Which it's been really, I mean, for start, for start, nice to see you again, but uh, also just nice to talk through things. Um, we've traditionally finished the last few with the sort of if you were able to kind of give some advice to your senior house officer self or kind of first year registrar self, um, that something you know now that you wish you'd known then, is there anything that, that springs to mind? Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's all sorts of things that spring to mind, which um, I'm sure are self-evident to everybody here about kind of like, you know, don't be a dick to other people, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but um, uh, actually, I think that um, some of the situations that cause the greatest kind of, you know, um, stress and, you know, lying awake at four o'clock in the morning uh, for for consultants and, and indeed doctors at all levels um, are around those ones where there, there's kind of, you know, conflict and shopping around and second opinions and um, dispute over boundaries and poor communication and all this kind of stuff. So I, I think that I, I've, I've learned from a mentor, if you like, about the importance of being really, really clear from the very beginning about, uh, about those sorts of things. So, um, you know, if someone says, would you mind giving a second opinion on, on, on this sort of situation? Um, from the very beginning, you've got to make sure that it's done right. Okay, so, um, for example, in the context of things like second opinions and kind of patients shopping around from one hospital to another, you know, always got to take it back to the person who currently has ownership of care and ask for them to make a referral to the second opinion with all of the available information and copying everybody involved in so that there's good communication and transparency across. And then, you know, um, about kind of, um, if, if, if those referrals are, are clear and questions are, are openly stated rather than sort of buried in euphemism, then um, everybody along the way is, is protected by that. Hmm. Um, there'll be lots of, of simple clinical cases where this is not of terribly great importance. Um, but those kind of like really cortically scarring episodes, those, those, the, the, the cases that, that still give you the chills a decade later, um, you know, and, and cases like Charlie Gard, for example, that were in the news, um, you know, you, you know what the, the consultants that were looking after that, that child were, were living through at the time. If, if, if from the very beginning you haven't built a sort of sound logical case with all the information and, and kind of like making sure that ownership of clinical decision making is really clear, then, um, then everything falls apart. Hmm. So um, I think that would be, probably be my my biggest tip is just making sure that um, uh, where, where where trouble is foreseeable that it's really tightly managed from the very beginning, 
um, and that you 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 do a proper case, a, a proper job on it, irrespective of how much pressure you come under. I think that's really good advice. I think I had some advice early on about you know the sort of colleague stopping you in a corridor for a bit of advice sort of thing and. Uh, could you see a friend or a relative type of thing? And they're always, those are awkward in a different sort of way. Uh, but again, I think that the, the point is, you know, if you're going to see somebody, you must do it properly. You must get a referral done. You must see them, you know, take a history, examine them like they were a total stranger, be utterly objective about it, regardless of whatever relationship you have with that person, kind of professional or otherwise. And I guess that's that same sort of thing. It's about just process uh, above anything else. Um, Absolutely. We, we had a, um, so there was a child who came to our emergency department the other day, um, brought by the parents um, after some scary seizures. Um, and they were referred to me the next day, you know, to see in my epilepsy clinic um, because of the, the kind of, you know, devastating nature of their seizures and headache and fatigue and dizziness. Um, and um, they were out of area and there was a hint that they'd been seen in another hospital beforehand. Um, so, so when you get into out of area and um, a second opinion and that sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, a story that's hinting at a psychogenic disorder, and you just think, if I just say, yes, I will see this patient um, in my clinic, then um, at every step along the way, things will fall down. So the communication with the GP will fall down. Um, the plan that's been put in place by um, the team that saw them initially will fall down. The um, psychiatry support that they're trying to um, arrange for, for this young person, that will all fall down. At every stage, actually, this patient will come to harm, and I will be getting complaining emails and complaints and referrals to the GMC are plenty um, if we don't take it back to, to first principles. So right back to everybody involved and say, okay, so this patient is currently seen in this um, uh, um, service. Um, I can't accept them in my epilepsy clinic because our epilepsy nurse specialists don't cover that area. We can't access the multidisciplinary care that they may require, such as psychiatry to whom they've already been referred. Um, uh, if they require a second opinion, then this is the route that it should be organized through. Mm. You know, so um, making absolutely explicit from the very beginning, because otherwise, um, then uh, you just get burned. Yeah, and you get bogged, it, bogged down in it then for ages, don't you? And nobody benefits. Rich, that is, that is sage advice, I think, uh, for what can sometimes be a kind of difficult, thank you, because <laughs> it is a difficult process, isn't it, medicine? Um, and you can definitely make it harder for yourself um, by getting off on the wrong foot, can't you? Uh, but Rich, it, it, like, it's it's really helpful to chat to you. And I think, um, you know, like I, I feel like actually there's probably, we have more in common than divides us, as is often said um, uh, about a lot of things. But actually it sounds like the approaches are um, similar in a lot of conditions actually. And, and you know, maybe 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 we are we're bedfellows in, in more ways than we'd thought. Well, <laughs> that, that takes me right back to 1994. Things descended into nonsense and gibberish shortly after that, so I decided to draw things to a close. Next week, we're talking Parkinson's with Dr. Ed Newman from Glasgow, and the following week, Lou Wiblin is speaking to Dr. Sui Wong, consultant neuroophthalmologist at Murfield's Eye Hospital. Hope you can join us then. This utterly amateurish podcast hour has been brought to you by Tease Neuro, 
in conjunction with the goodwill of many different neurologists around the country and our long-suffering trainees listening in. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. Is that what they say? I think that's what they say. Anyway, you know what I mean.